right. Thank you, everybody, for joining us on Couch to Couch. This is officially episode 10. Can you believe it or not? I know. I can't believe it. And sometimes I can't believe it, if that makes any sense. I wanted to jump in and say a special thank you to everybody who's listening. It's really heartwarming to see how many people are enjoying the show, the great comments that are out there and the suggestions that I'm getting. And I wanted to just spend some time saying thank you. I'm very proud of this, and I feel blessed and lucky every day that I get to do it. All right, so enjoy the conversation, enjoy the next guest, and always you can reach out to us at Instagram, couch.to.couch. Send me a message and let me know what you think. All right, enjoy the show. Okay, welcome everybody to Couch to Couch, Making Therapy Make Sense with Chuck LeBlanc. Welcome back. Today we have a very special guest, Eve Mills Allen. Uh, who currently works as a mental health therapist for LifeWorks in the Moncton office, New Brunswick, Canada. Um, well, I said that way too quick. In the Moncton office, which is in <laughs> New Brunswick, Canada. Uh, she counsels by telephone with clients throughout Canada and does some private work as well. She has an MED, which is a Master's of Education in Counseling Psychology from the University of New Brunswick, as well as a, an MA in Creative Writing. She worked for several years as a journalist before changing careers. For the past 30 years, she's facilitated therapeutic writing workshops and worked in the mental health field, most often in First Nations community throughout Atlantic Canada. A portion of this work was in the field of addictions and trauma. In 2002, her memoir, Little White Squaw, A White Woman's Story of Abuse, Addiction, and Reconciliation, under the name Eve Mills Nash, co-authored by Kenneth J. Harvey, was published by Beach Home Publishing in Vancouver. It is now with Dundon Press in Toronto. In 2003, she self-published a children's story. I forgot to ask how to pronounce this. Molly Musquash. Molly Musquash and the Seven Deadlies and the Friendly Feelings Kit based on her work with reality therapy, which was used in Fredericton, the Fredericton area and elementary schools. She used this kit while working with children identified as conduct disordered for school district 18 for nine years. Eve is passionate about the value of therapeutic writing as a tool to restore any situation and nurture resiliency. As a result, she took on one of the biggest challenges of her career in 2013. She agreed to help a survivor of the genocide in Guatemala tell his story as he found ways to heal from PTSD. It took eight years and taught her much about the practice of therapy. The result was a book that is changing lives. In February 2021, her nonfiction novel, In the Arms of Inup, The Extraordinary Story of a Guatemalan Survivor and His Quest for Healing from Trauma, was released by Harp Publishing in Nova Scotia, Canada. Two months later, April 2021, her fiction, Unlikely Angels, which shows how trauma survivors sometimes use fantasy to cope with their painful memories, was released through Taj Mahal Publishing in India, uh, cyberwit.net. All right, so welcome to the show, Eve. Uh, now, I know that was a lengthy biography here, but did I miss anything? Is there anything you'd like to tell <laughs> tell the crowd out there? No, I think I think you summed it up well. It's just that uh, I've been around for a long time, and I'm really love what I do and I'm really committed to trying to help people well, it's excellent. not just a job that's for sure yeah that's well it doesn't sound like it. you've been doing it for over 30 years and it sounds like it sounds like you've gone in 
many directions which are they're all connected so you can see an evolution here but you mentioned uh, reality therapy for one creative writing and the use of writing uh, in therapy as well as well as nurturing resiliency so I'm very curious about all three and I wondered if I could if you could tell me a little bit more first about reality therapy because I know very little about reality therapy but I know that I like the sound of it okay so um, reality therapy, I, I did training for reality therapy. Um, probably you've heard of Dr. William Glasser, you know, mm -hmm. he's the person who established that therapy. He was a psychiatrist actually, and uh, worked in the 50s, 60s, 70s. <clears throat> and it's basically looking at how and I'm, I'm making this over simple, but it's really important how that good relationships can go a long way in helping people with their mental health, even more so sometimes than other things. And uh, I was really impressed. I actually did some study under Dr. Glasser, who's now passed. Mm. Um, and I was really impressed with his work because as a psychiatrist, he really didn't... Um, feel very strongly that medication was should ever be the first go-to mm -hmm. that um, he should try to help first to see if people could nurture relationships in their lives he, he would always say um, if you have one person in your life who cares about you your mental health will be greatly improved okay so it's all about fostering and nurturing relationships yeah, that's that's a part of it. There's a, there's a lot more to reality therapy and choice theory is part of that, you know. Mm. Um, but the part that I'm the, the most uh, that's been the most helpful for me is the relationship part. I think that's been I think the relationship side of things has been the biggest eye opener for me since I've started uh, in in counseling itself. So I have a philosophy background. My f main focus was on human development, but how, how how do we create the conditions of human development is, is what my master's was, was all about. And a lot of it had to do with how does the individual understand, come to understand the things that they value? And then how can we see the things that are getting in the way of that? And then what do we do about them? And so sometimes it's an, an individual perspective. We're getting in our own way some, somehow, which that has been transformed thanks to my psych degree into saying that there's ways we defend ourselves from the environment, uh, from the things around us. So it's never self-sabotage. It's all about how are we protecting ourselves, but it's inadvertently stopping us from moving forward. But then most importantly from that study, it was what are the conditions of the environment? The political conditions, relational conditions, familial conditions that are getting in our own way and preventing us from pursuing the things that we have to value. And from becoming a counselor, I have realized that the relationships have a lot more to do with it than I originally thought. Have a lot more to do with not only healing, but also the barriers that are in our way. Um, you know, one of the biggest core wounds we have as humans, in my opinion, is shame. And shame is a relational emotion. Someone is either weaponizing it against us and holding us down, or we're weaponizing it against ourselves and holding us down. But it's never in a vacuum. It's always one-on-one, -on -one, 
or group on one sort of situation. Um, that was a bit of a tangent, but I got excited about that. So I'll be doing more, <laughs> <laughs> more research into reality therapy. Um, but so the next two, uh, writing and then resiliency. So I know these topics are going to be mixed because a real big portion of, of this and the conversation today is going to be on resilience. But can you tell me a little bit more about the writing, therapeutic writing? Okay, well, I believe in being, I'm a pretty grassroots kind of person and, and stay away from jargon. So, you know, when I'm using, um, when I'm talking with a client and uh, I feel that therapeutic writing could be helpful for them, I quite often give um, exercises that are simply questions that they need to answer. Like something as simple as, um, I just did this today, actually, something as simple as if you truly loved yourself unconditionally, what things would you change in your life? Hmm. Well, it's, it's just one simple question. But when I give that to a client and tell them, don't answer it quickly, spend days, think about the question, go back, write a little bit more. Hmm. And almost always the people that I give a question like that to, they come to their own conclusions or they'll come up with things that I would have never thought to have asked them in the first place. Mm -hmm. So the therapeutic writing process sometimes is about getting people to start questioning themselves, mm -hmm. forming their own questions. And that can also be about challenging emotions. I say the same thing about emotions. I tell them, you know, I tell people, Think of emotions, the ones that bother you as house guests, you know, you don't really want them there, but they come anyway. Mm -hmm. So when they come, ask them what they want. You know, if you're having a day and you're sad a lot, you know, look at sadness and say, what is it you want from me? Mm -hmm. what, what are you trying to teach me? And so sometimes, you know, just turning that around and dialoguing with, um, emotions can be a very simple part of therapeutic writing. The kind that I did when I undertook this uh, book <laughs> with uh, Hermes, it was much more complicated and, you know, very complex in a lot of ways that mm -hmm. I had no idea, you know, when I first began, because I had my ideas of how this should work. And he taught me in those eight years, he taught me how to hold space for someone who has suffered from very severe trauma in a way that I'd never held space before. Mm -hmm. So also, I came to find out a lot more about what resiliency looks like, you know, and we talked about it before. The early research on uh, resiliency focused a lot on people with certain traits. Mm -hmm. And if it just stayed there, then you'd be thinking, well, okay, some people have that personality and they're going to do okay. So the other people are kind of, <laughs> they're not going to make it, right? Well, yeah, it's like the but talent and skill conversation. Yeah, really. Yeah. So how do you nurture something that isn't there? But that's not where the research is today. And it's not what I believe either that... Um, one of the biggest things, and um, I like I like how um, the American Psychological Association sums up 
just some of the things they talk about with resiliency, they talk about what contributes positive emotions and optimism, of course, but loving caregivers and solid role models, a history of mastering challenges. So you get, you know, a frame of reference. You talk mm -hmm. to someone and say, tell me when you had a problem that you, you know, you solved or mm -hmm. something you thought you couldn't do and you did it. I you love know? that question. Yeah, I love mm -hmm. it. And um, cognitive flexibility is probably one of the best, I think, one of the best things for um, that we want to help clients and want to nurture for clients. And that is something as simple. A lot of us, you know, let's say that we have a plan to go on vacation on Tuesday. Mm. But something comes up and we can't go on Tuesday. Well, a lot of people get so upset that they, mm. you know, it ruins their whole day, their whole week. But if you have cognitive flexibility, oh, well, if it doesn't happen on Tuesday, then you have a plan B and a plan C. Mm -hmm. So when you have things like trauma and you have people that are facing much bigger issues than a canceled vacation, mm. helping them see where they've already been flexible, cognitively, you know, flexible, I think is a really important how that, you know, and helping them reframe things and, and that kind of stuff. I always say something about support from spirituality, though. I think it's it's being talked about more, but not enough. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, every person needs some form of spirituality. And for some, that can be religion. Mm -hmm. But for many, many people, that has nothing to do with religion. What feeds your spirit? What makes you feel some peace or joy? That kind of thing. Um, and the other thing is... Uh, capacity to extract meaning from what's happening in your life. And the thing that I thought was really um, applicable to the work I did with Aramaeus, they talk about attention to health and good cardiovascular fitness as being a very important aspect of uh, resiliency. Mm -hmm. So it's funny, in my own life, when I faced adversity, I automatically and I'm not a particularly uh, active person, but I would go walk. I would walk and walk and walk. And I know with Hermaeus, when he talked about it, and as he, even today, he runs. Mm. He constantly runs. I have another uh, friend who had some very traumatic events in her life, and she became a runner. Mm. So it's funny, you know, no one told them this is going to make it foster your resiliency they just did it instinctually you know yeah i so, find something that amazing i i have the same experience i started to one of the most difficult periods of my life went around when i was 13 years old i started walking long distances i just started with the uh the old tape cassette walkman right uh, just walking around ottawa for hours at a time clearing my head and now at 37 it's still a common practice common yeah it's a daily one to two hour thing. And if I have a difficult thing that I need to chew on or I'm having a very difficult time emotionally, I walk. And then the goal is when I come back, either something's resolved or I feel better. And I don't come back until I do. And then it always happens. And nobody told me that would help. It was just instinct, I guess. 
Yeah, and and that's what I find too, because like I say, I'm not, um, I've never been especially active person or sports type person, but walking is anytime that I'm, you know, I try to walk on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And I certainly, if I'm experiencing anything in my life, walking is my go-to. Mm -hmm. You know, there's another little exercise I do that combines the walking and the mindfulness aspect, because mindfulness as you know, as you know, um, staying in the present moment is like mm -hmm. the foundation of all the, all the self-help groups and 12 step groups in the world that, you know, they've been doing it for a long time. They do mm -hmm. everything one day at a time, one day at a time. Well, staying in the moment is really sometimes not that easy mm -hmm. so one of the little exercises that i talk about a lot there was new research that came out in 2019 about this actually a 10-minute mindfulness walk mm. and it's just simply a walk and a lot of people don't walk a great deal and they don't have a lot of time but i always say you can put aside 10 minutes set out go for a walk by yourself no no pets no music and you have one thing that you need to do on that walk. You need to focus on what you see in front of you. Mm -hmm. So we all know that you wouldn't even get a minute in before another thought comes into your head, right? Mm -hmm. So the whole purpose, according to the research, I mean, isn't just getting segments of time where you're thinking only about what's in front of you, but it's being able to push away thoughts without feeling frustrated about it. Mm -hmm. So it's the action of, you know, pushing away thoughts you don't want, going right back to what you see in front of you. And I've tried this myself. I mean, I, I focus on the color, you know, the color of the sky, mm -hmm. the color of the trees and that kind of thing. But the research says if you can do that, it's going to cut down on the production of the stress hormone, which we all need, you know. And it's certainly going to raise your serotonin and boost your immune system and do all those good things. Mm -hmm. So that little 10 minute exercise, I have a lot of my clients doing it now mm -hmm. who never walked. They, do, they don't like to walk and they're doing this 10 minute exercise and they're telling me that it's helping them. Great. Just, you know, just something simple. Yeah. In our fast paced society, it's difficult to want to take, take a minute for yourself. We have to produce, 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 and then we, you know, get burnt out or stressed out and feel like the walls are closing in but 10 minutes a day will help a lot with that. For sure. Mm -hmm. And even if you don't even have that much time, because I have a lot of clients who don't, uh, I suggest a minute maximizer. Mm. Most people have a cell phone or you're using a laptop, or maybe if you could just put a picture in a frame. I just suggest that you get a picture, not associated with anything you've ever done in your life or any place you've been, but a picture of something that you could look at where you could actually put yourself in that picture. Like mm -hmm. I have one on my wall of a field full of sunflowers. Mm -hmm. I have one on my laptop of trees, a path through the woods. And I actually can stop in between clients for one minute, stare at that picture and just get refreshed so they can go on to the next person. Mm -hmm. So I suggest that to people as well. And a lot of people have, um, have found that to be a useful little tool to help when they're feeling overwhelmed. Mm. Yeah, it's a moment to be present with yourself. Yeah. Just checking in, 
and just being taking a breath from the worries right that's for sure so you're talking you're, you're talking about a few steps building resi- resiliency um i was wondering if you can list them again and then we can go through it piece by piece i'm i'm interested well, in I, diving. I, yeah i'd like to i'd like to um i'd actually like to list just using that one as a backdrop, um, there was some new research in 2014 that I really like um, by, and I don't know if I'll get this name right, but doctors Iacovili and Cherney. And in their study, they looked at everything. They looked at a lot of research and brought it down to identifying six psychosocial factors that promote resilience. And I like these ones. Number one is optimism. Number two, cognitive flexibility. Number three, active coping skills. Four, maintaining a supportive social network. Five, attending to one's physical well-being. And six, embracing a personal moral compass. Mm -hmm. So I think that what they came up with actually takes all those other things and puts them into uh, more succinctly, I guess. Mm Because in my work in First Nations communities and with people like Aramaeus, the people that seem to do well in recovering from trauma, when I look at this little list, I can almost check them all off, you know? Mm. Yeah. And so those are what you're fostering with those people. What you were fostering and nurturing fits into those six categories. Yeah, I like that. And they, um, the people who did the research, this research I'm talking about, they did it based on a book written um, by Amanda Lindhout. She had been kidnapped and she wrote this book, A House in the Sky. Okay. I, I actually met her at a, a conference in St. John's, Newfoundland, the trauma conference a few years ago and heard her speak. And um, and so they were talking to her about what worked for her and some of the things that she talked about fit into these categories as well. She talked a lot about uh, the cognitive flexibility and the social support system, having people come alongside um, and using mindfulness, mm-hmm. reframing situations, that kind of thing. So when I read this, I thought, well, wow, this is... Um, really close to the work that I've been doing Mm -hmm. lately, you know? One of the things um, that I think, when I think about uh, Jeremias, when I was thinking about how he escaped from a horrendous, uh, from the massacre when he was 11 years old and had to go across the mountains with a few of his family members and face a lot of dangers, that kind of thing. the fear you would have as an 11 year old. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a part in his story and I'd like to read it. It's just a little paragraph that fits into this whole resiliency thing to me that mm-hmm. I thought it just, it's an image that it stayed with me. He continues. We just kept walking. When we approached the village, I would go ahead to make sure the military was not still in the community before we stopped there. One evening as we were resting, I watched a spider build its nest. Before that, I used to feel afraid of these big spiders. But this time, I felt it had a message for me. It was part of me, my relation. 
As I watched, I thought about its strength, how it never gave up. I knew even if something hurt the web, it would just rebuild. That seemed to give me strength too. After all, even at 11, wasn't I stronger than a spider? That little story that he told about that, I think really captured mm-hmm. an important point about resiliency. Yeah, definitely his relation to the spider and as well as his ability, well, I guess it's a bit of cognitive flexibility too. Yeah, and and I think there's a spiritual element to that. I mean, his story has certainly drawing on things that were very spiritual in nature. And, and for him, messages from the, like a spider, mm-hmm. was part of that belief system for him, you know? Yeah, I'd like to I'd like to dive a little bit deeper on that because I think the spirituality piece is often under discussed. A very important piece, but under discussed. Even in yeah. my own practice, it doesn't come up very often. Uh, but it should. And so can we can you walk me through a little bit about how you found what does spirituality add? How do you foster that? Okay, well, I mean for one thing I always ask my clients is what do you do to feed your spirit? Hmm. And a lot of them don't like that question because they'll say, well, what do you mean spirit? And I said, well, no, I don't. I need you to define that. Mm-hmm. And then we, we have a talk about it. And I give them one of the therapeutic writing questions, which is if my spirit could talk, what would it tell me? What would it want me to know? Mm-hmm. And I leave that because I don't want to prompt any answers. I, I just want to leave with the question. But then if, if there's still difficulty afterwards, and I said, well, just to give you a little bit of an idea, spirituality, your spirit, is that part of you that feels great joy and peace? So what, what can you put in there to feed that? What feeds that joy, that peace, that mm-hmm. uh, um, feeling like the world's going to be okay? Can you think of anything? And so if the client can't think of anything, then I will help. But generally speaking, they'll say, you know, something. And a lot of people will say, oh, I'm not religious. Mm -hmm. And I said, this is not about religion. Mm -hmm. Even if you have a brand of religion that helps you, it's not about the religion. It's about how does that belief system contribute to the joy in your life because in a lot of cases religion certainly hasn't contributed to joy mm-hmm. but the you know the messages or the beliefs or maybe even the music from certain mm-hmm. religions have contributed to the joy for lots of people so you mm-hmm. can't throw the you know the baby out with the bathwater kind of mm-hmm. thing you know that's right, that's right so it could be religion but it may not be religion it may be um, sitting out Uh, beside a stream and watching the water Mm. it may be painting a picture it may be playing your guitar Mm. it may be singing it may be creating something by baking you know whatever unleashes the creative part of you you are the creator i don't know well it's a feeling of being a part of something bigger than you yes and you also believing that there is something bigger than you out there but also if you tap into your own creativity then you are empowered because Mm -hmm. you are also a creator Mm -hmm. 
no matter if you don't have power in your life and anything else, you know, mm -hmm. just tapping into some. So I often tell people, I don't care if you never painted before, go to the dollar store and get some canvas, you know, get some canvases and paint brushes and, mm. you know, and, and paint and try it, create something. It, you're, you're not, you don't have to do it to sell. Mm -hmm. Take what's inside of you and do something abstract if you need to do that and create, always create, because we need to have, you know, we have to be empowered as well. So how do, how can we empower our clients, right? That's right. Yeah. And how can you fan those flames? Yeah. And it could be some, and I hear people say, well, I can't, I, you know, I have no talents. I have no, everybody has something they can do. Mm -hmm. During the pandemic, everybody started gardening. That was instinctual, mm -hmm. right? They started growing things Yep. because they were creators. They had losing power. Mm -hmm. So they needed to do something that gave them power. They were actually, you know, creating things, living beings, living things. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that was by mistake. You couldn't you couldn't even buy seeds during the first part of the pandemic. Everyone had gone out and cleaned out all the places you could yeah. plant for planting. All of a sudden they sprouted green thrums left, right, and center. Yeah, really. <laughs> I tried it. It didn't work well for me. Huh? <laughs> we we did. My my wife and I have created a garden in the back and we've never gardened before and now it's it's entirely out of control. We have more zucchinis than we know what to do than two people <laughs> should ever have. <laughs> it's been wall-to-wall -wall zucchini bread for about a month now. <laughs> but I, I did, I mean, I'd never painted in my life. And uh, I'd had two, I had gone to an art class a couple of times and I thought it was pretty cool. So I, I started painting during the pandemic. Mm. I went on YouTube and there's all kinds of people that will teach you how to paint. And I, I really, it really helped a great mm. deal. It helped me feel I had some power at times when I couldn't even visit my family and, you know, we were restricted and that kind of thing. So, I mean, when you talk about resiliency, there's not a person around who wouldn't benefit mm -hmm. from having someone help them with their resiliency. But when you talk about trauma survivors, it's really, you know, it's especially important. Um, there's another quote I really like, and this is my belief, what I'm doing, actually. Um, it's by, he's this therapist as well, Carl Memmer, and he's in Virginia. And he does resilience counseling. Mm. He says, our job, our jobs are not to take away the burdens of others, but to help them organize the chaos in their own lives by listening objectively and helping them develop or enhance skills to more effectively take action and responsibility. And it's funny, I'd never really read his, his work, but I had used that phrase myself. Someone asked me one time, what are you doing? You know, when I was working with Aramaeus, I said, I'm, I'm helping him organize the chaos. Mm -hmm. I just, mm -hmm. I just felt that in instinctually that uh, that was my job to listen and help him organize, not to fix him. Mm -hmm. Not to fix him. That's a big help, part yeah. of it. That's a big part of it. <laughs> yeah, because uh, yeah, I'm right there with you. One of the things that I love about being a counselor, and one of the reasons I agreed to jump into the field was not to go out and put band-aids on everyone because they have their own strength. Every client you meet has the tools they need somewhere in there. And they know what's happening. They just haven't had the opportunity to organize it in a safe space. 
have someone who's willing to be vulnerable with them, to see them for what they are in a loving capacity where they're not judged so that they can then get it all out on the table, organize it, and then finally decide Mm. where do they want to go with it? How do they want to live? All these questions, all these existential questions, like how I want to live, you know, when a client says I want to be happier, do you know what you're asking? I think deep down you do, but you've never been in a safe enough space to actually ask the question honestly. And, you know, with trauma, trauma's uh, just a, a big one. Because when a trauma occurs, you know, multiple trauma, regardless of what you're working with, complex or not, the trauma itself has changed how these people are seeing the world. The danger is now so present that they're seeing the other side of the world in a little bit of a darker way. So how is it that you can organize yourself to work your way out of that if you're already seeing the world in such a dark light? And so part of organizing it is all about the reality of the situation, seeing, you know, not denying what happened or not denying that there's darkness, but bringing in a way to organize it so you can work your way through it and saying, you know, the world or life is what it is, but it's what we make of it neither good nor bad, but is. And how do you play with that? And I think the therapeutic environment is one of the most beautiful places to see it happen. Because as a therapist, you're not sitting there with like a backpack full of (laughs) tools and just say, here, use this, use this, try this, use this pitchfork. But it's trying to see what tools the client has in their backpack. And is there a Mm -hmm. different way we can use that? That is beautiful. I think, um, too, as therapists, we have to be very aware of the culture of our mm-hmm. client, you know, in, in all areas. Um, but I'm thinking in particular in the areas where I've worked, that most of those areas, they have been a collective culture mm-hmm. as opposed to what we're used to in, in mainstream Canada. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so that we can't assume ever assume that we know the direction it probably should go in. And we all do. I mean, we all get that in our head, Mm -hmm. but in a collective uh, society, there's a whole different worldview. So we also can draw from that as well to help Mm -hmm. our clients. If you know that they're part of a collective society, for example, you know, when I hear Hermes say the spider helped him, that's my relation. Mm -hmm. Well, if I know that, and if I know that he feels he's related to everything around him, mm-hmm. then that's helpful for me mm-hmm. to nurture that, to nurture that. You know, when I was a little girl, my father taught me that if you were feeling bad, go put your hand on a tree because the tree will help you be feel stronger. Mm-hmm. You know, I came from a different background. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, t- I pass that on to some of my clients sometimes, and they actually go and do it. And they say, you know, that really works. (laughs) Anyway, um, there is another point, too, that I wanted to bring up that, you know, if we attend to a client's resilience, we have to be sure to build and maintain our own. Yep, that's so important. Yeah. Mm. And there's a really good book I I actually just ordered because I'm interested. It's called The Resilient Clinician. Oh, neat. Yeah, by Robert J. Wicks. And he talks a lot about, you know, what happens when we do sessions back to back, you know, and how that is detrimental. And that's why I use my Minute Maximizer now in between my 
sessions to clear mm -hmm. my head. But, you know, we hear about, we hear about compassion fatigue, all those things that foster resilience, you know, like a lot of people don't pay attention to their body, mm -hmm. mind, spirit. You're sitting at a desk a lot of times. You get in a walk maybe, but not everyone's eating properly. Mm -hmm. And we, we really, if we want to foster that in, in others, then we really need to do that. And we also need to nurture that alone time. I always talk about alone time and um, kind of as you're, that's a big spiritual thing right there, you know, that alone time, feeling good about your alone time and having that mm -hmm. little bit of, whether you meditate or what you do, you know, yoga, I'm not a yoga person but I recommend laugh yoga all the time. Mm, I've never because, heard of laugh yoga. Oh my goodness. You need to check it out. And anybody who's interested it, you can go on YouTube and there's lots of people who teach it, but I used to send people out to learn it in person. Mm. And what it does is it works on the diaphragm. It's an artificial kind of laughing, but scientifically it's been proven that it also cuts down on the production of the stress hormone, mm. you know, and it gets that trap stuff, you know, it helps our nervous system, our central nervous system, mm -hmm. sympathetic nervous system. And it just, but you look a little foolish doing it. So mm -hmm. Some people don't want to try it. Other people will do it if they can do it with somebody. Mm -hmm. But there's little groups where they do laugh yoga. And it just, it feels like, well, I mean, if you can think about any time you have one of those big belly laughs, you know, where you mm -hmm. can't stop laughing. It's kind of, you, you come out of it feeling like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. that's just a simple little technique. That's, that's funny. Yeah. I do uh, like a singing. I like to sing. So one of the exercises to connect your diaphragm is to laugh. It's like a, a ha 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 thing that you have to do yeah. in a controlled <laughs> way. But no matter how long I've been doing it, I've been doing it for years. I can't get through it without laughing my head off. This is still makes me giggle like crazy. So I've never successfully gone through it, but I'm still trying. Uh, but it does its job because you come around feeling great and that's because it's it's staving off the cortisol entirely because you can't you can't really be laughing and having a good time and be angry and stressed at the exact same time the switches just oh, don't that, line up that's for sure <laughs> yeah but that's a that's a really good point i mean for the therapist's perspective we have to take care of ourselves and to check to do the work ourselves so that we can remain vulnerable and open by doing, a, you know, every therapist should have a therapist, as they say. Mm -hmm. But it's so important to have that as much as supervisors, but it's important to take care of yourself. That's a good point. Um, another thing that, um, and I have to go back to the book again, because this has come out of it. There's been some discussions and since the book came out, we've actually, um, in Fredericton, New Brunswick, um, we've been meeting as a collective to establish a healing center that will give, um, you know, provide healing in a way that um, is not the traditional kind of therapy, mm. which means we're going to use music and we're going to use uh, sports and we're going to use dance and we're going to use just get togethers and food and walking and all of that. But <clears throat> in, a, in it, it's, encouraging people to tell their story in a way that's comfortable for them. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of the people that we've been working with are newcomers to Canada. So the language is a problem, right? Mm -hmm. 
So how can they tell their story? They can, or how do they get that out? They can get it out with dance, you know. Um, when we're trained as therapists, we're, we're told to stay out of our clients' stories. Mm. That doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work when you're, no, it doesn't work when you're dealing with trauma, especially. Mm -hmm. And that whole piece about trust, I mean, my goodness, who's going to trust you if they don't know something about you? That's right. That's right. You know. So I know that we used to be told to do that because they were worried about transference, you know? Well, I worked with Aramaeus for eight years. And he learned a lot about me. Mm -hmm. And I certainly learned a lot about him. But the boundaries were always there. Mm -hmm. You know, they were always still there. It was always appropriate boundaries. Mm-hmm. They're carefully constructed. I, I yeah. had that conversation for a long time. I know the last time we spoke about it was a podcast with Sarah Mackey was talking about self-disclosure and how important it is to not be, I mean, we're, we're not Freudian analysts, right? The clients don't come in, sit on the couch away from us and just talk, <laughs> right? No. Nowadays, we know this and you, you mentioned it earlier, but now it'd be a, like a really great point to jump into it is that healing happens relationally. It's and we know that because as a human species, that's what we do. We're social animals. And so it's supposed to happen relationally. So in the therapy room, the therapist's job isn't to be a robot to stand outside of the situation, but it's to be in there with you, collaborate with you. And, you know, there is dangers when it comes to uh, transfers and counter transfers, but those yeah. are dangers when when they're either missed or not dealt with appropriately because you're dealing with very intense emotional situations and boundaries are developed collaboratively together and maintained, right? You're in therapy because right. you know it. If we think about it yeah. in, uh, in terms of power dynamics, you know, one of when a client comes in, you want to make sure that you're not, it's not a expert and client situation because the client's the expert in their own life, but based on a power dynamic, they are coming in, to see a therapist. So there's that air of therapy to client situation. Mm -hmm. Your job is to make sure that they understand it's collaborative and it's like having a coffee with friends. That's a, I always say that in my first session, this is like having a coffee with a friend. And that's why the first two sessions are the most important because we have to make sure that we jive. And if we don't jive, then this isn't gonna work because the therapeutic relationship is everything. And so all of the things that we worry about with, with Countertransference, transference, self-disclosure. Uh, it's all about those blurred lines and not paying attention to the boundary. But when you're not doing that, then you're already doing like you're you're already screwing something up yeah. if you're letting those boundaries go. Because even the information you get through transference and countertransference is so important to the, the therapeutic process. One of the things that you mentioned too that sometimes clients. Uh clients are afraid to speak up too uh, and you know not every therapist is a good fit that's right and so mm -hmm. i think clients should be told that right up front i say it up front mm -hmm. you know if our personalities don't work well together if you're not comfortable with me with my style or anything please don't think i'll be offended i want you to get someone that you can really work with so if you need to get a different therapist by all means. But I think sometimes 
people will stay in therapy with someone because they're afraid to, I don't know if they're afraid to change or hurt their feelings, but really, you know, um, I think that's not said enough. Yeah. And I think it's so important to say it like in my intake process, I say it only and mainly because it's so the therapeutic relationship is the most important factor. Yes, it is. Uh, No matter what modality or how you go about it, that's the most important thing. And there, when a client comes in, they're coming in to heal. So they, it needs to be said because if, if I'm the function of how they're not healing, that's my fault. Yeah. And so it's so important to, to do that. And when you can be, I find as a therapist, I'm very direct. Uh, so everyone can always count on me saying they don't have to worry about me, what I'm thinking. I'm very direct. And so if you can do that in your very first session with a client, then they, more times than not, they're very open to saying, you know what, this isn't working. Great. Yep. I'll help you find someone else. Perfect. <laughs> we're, we're very much alike like that. I say sometimes I'm quite blunt, actually. I, I want to cut to the chase. I don't want to get you to get lost. And I mean, if a client needs to talk, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. But if, if we're not going in the right direction and there's too much time being spent in the problem and not moving in any way whatsoever towards a solution, you know, just even stepping over a little bit, I will stop and say, we need to start spending some time now, mm-hmm. you know, working on the solution or moving over to the solution side. I mean, that can be a lot of things, but I think it's up to us, you know, if we, if we're working with clients and we feel like we're not there to nurture a codependency. That's right. If we see that it's going in that direction, then we're the ones that need to speak up and say, you know, or to make the movement or say, Mm -hmm. okay, you know, I think you're doing quite well. And now it's time for you to maybe try this on your own for a while, you know, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. But I think as therapists, we have to, we have to speak up, you know, if we, if we see it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I mean, there's, there's so many easy ways to do that. Good ways to do it. It doesn't have to feel like it's rejection, that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. But I mean, keeping a safe space for people. I found when the pandemic took over, I was doing telephone counseling two days a week before. Mm-hmm. But then all of a sudden, I lost my three days of face to face, which mm-hmm. was really hard. Um, I found that trying to keep that space was harder on the phone. Mm-hmm. Because I couldn't get into what that person, the other person wanted as quickly as I could, if I saw them face to face. So it's a little bit challenging, I think sometimes on the phone. And now I'm kind of in that, I'm kind of in the groove on the phone. So mm-hmm. it's working quite well, except for, I never recommend couples counseling on the phone. Mm-hmm. I've, I have done couples counseling on the phone, but I, I just find it works much better in person. I've been very curious as to how that could work. Uh, yeah. I work with a couples counselor who does it virtually. Not over the phone, but virtual. And I, I was trained in couples counseling and I was dabbling in taking it on, but I haven't yet. I've stuck to my, my guns on what I'm exploring right now, but I don't know how that would work. But uh, similar to telephone, you know, it took me about a month to get into it over the telephone and then it evolved into something beautiful. Like, I very much enjoy it now. Um, 
But that month was very difficult to sort out because I had no body language. I had nothing but tone and vocal inflection to go on. But now it's turned into something amazing and I highly recommend it. But that's beside the point. With couples, you're missing out on so much over the phone. Because as, as you know, I don't have to tell you this, this is more for the, the audience, but in, in a couples counseling, the client isn't the couples that we're talking to, it's the relationship. And so you need to be able to immerse yourself in how the couples are dancing together to get a flavor for the personality of the relationship. How mm. you do that over the phone, I have, would have no idea. It's yeah, it's quite difficult. I mean, I have done some couples counseling over the phone, and I really prefer not to do that. But um, you know, it's been successful a bit. But and sometimes working with children over the phone doesn't work as well either, because <clears throat> children need to build up trust. Children that need therapy usually need to build up trust, and they're not going to be as trusting to this voice on the other end yeah. of the phone. You know, the disembodied voice. <laughs> the disembodied voice. I mean, the video counseling it works pretty well for children, but uh, I think I mean, in we're in a whole different world. I mean, we're moving back towards a mixture, I think, of face to face, probably, and video and telephone. And some people live in places where they can't get out, you know, for counseling. So, mm -hmm. um, telephone counseling can work quite well. Mm -hmm. um, I found it quite successful and, um, except like I said, you know, if there's, um, face-to-face -face counseling for couples, I think that would be preferable, mm -hmm. but working with this, you know, um, getting back to this whole, you know, trauma and resiliency idea, I think probably these kinds of, um, therapeutic relationships are, need to be, you know, be given a longer time. So if you're getting uh, short EAP kinds of counseling, you know, three sessions, four sessions, be quite difficult. You would probably only want to, uh, you know, if someone comes to you with trauma, then probably you would only want to address something like giving them strategies for anxiety, mm -hmm. you know, to help them with the surface things so that they can get into something longer term. Mm -hmm. So like I said, I mean, because I never dreamed I would spend eight years, you know, with a person telling their story mm -hmm. and there were gaps, there were gaps in there three months that he didn't want to talk to me. Mm -hmm. And I had to accept that. You know what I mean? Like yeah, I had, course. I had to be okay with that. In the beginning, I wasn't, I'll be honest with you. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, I was pushing a little bit. Well, we should get together. We should. And he told me one day, he said, I can't. He said, you have to know I'm the one that knows when we can get together. Excellent. Nice. And after I heard that, that was it. That's all I needed to know. Mm -hmm. I let him be in charge of that part. I would do a check-in mm -hmm. just to see, are you okay? And if there wasn't a lot of talk, but I mean, in that therapeutic relationship, we also did not meet in an office. Mm. we met at uh, parks sometimes sitting out at a coffee table there coffee or, or at a picnic table with a coffee mm. um we met in his home we met in my home you know 
all safe spaces because somebody coming from uh, a culture where they might have been put into a little box office and interrogated, interrogated. Mm -hmm. it's not going to do very well sitting in an office with a stranger. That's right. So we have to think about new ways of doing our counseling. I, I know that lots of people can come to the office and get counseling as usual, but even when I went to first, I went to First Nations communities and I went to their community mm. and did like a day sign up. You know, if you want to come see me, you can sign up for 10 minutes or two hours, whatever. So That's I think, we ha I mean, we have to, we have to do other things. Mm -hmm. We can't just do the 50 traditional 50 minutes. Some people want to talk for two hours. Yeah. And some people only want to talk for 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I feel like I've kind of gone all over the place with this. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I like it. I like it because you, you want therapy to be as unique as the people we talk to. Human beings are, are unique. And that's part of the fun for me is how chaotic it can be. Everyone's different. Like, yeah, I've been influenced as <laughs> yeah. a therapist from so many different places, from philosophy to psychology to my own life experiences. And then every client that comes in is like a book onto its own. So I, they're the expert in their own life and I'm going to be changed by this conversation. So who am I to say, okay, today we're doing CBT and I'm going to run you through this like cheese gator of categories to organize your brain. But like, that makes no sense. But it it is interesting because I've heard a lot more about how therapy is transforming. There's different ways of doing it. Just like you mentioned, one that I'm interested in once we're probably by next spring when we're back, back live, whatever that looks like. Then I'll be engaging in things like walking therapy, spending yeah. uh, a day where people can sign up to do walking therapy that day where we'll walk for the whole 50 minutes and there's a beautiful park to go to. Uh, and that would be more aligned to what I would do because over the phone, one of the reasons it works so well for me is I'm super energetic. So sitting down for long periods of times is painful for me. And now I can walk with people as I pace around my house because I'm the only one here or sometimes go outside and walk with somebody as they're outside. I have one client that likes to do that with me. And you're taking care of yourself while you're doing that, actually. That's it. That's right. I, I like the walking therapy idea. Um, that's something that our collective is talking about, you know, get it, using that a little bit more, mm -hmm. the walking uh, walking therapy. And uh, there, uh, one, uh, quite a while ago, I, I went in and did some, oh, I wanted to say something about groups before we finish. Yes, please. Groups are very, very important. Mm -hmm. I find that, you know, in the healing process, there's a lot of individual counseling that, need, you know, that needs to take place, but there's so much healing that can come from groups. That's why self-help groups work. That's why uh, <clears throat> people can share histories. Maybe it's traditions. Um groups provide community it's there's so many things that a group can do mm -hmm. so uh, back a few years ago there was a place here called um that was uh, put together for women who were coming out of prison mm. it was a home where they could stay it was called samaria house and i went in and did some work there with drumming mm. i'm not a i'm not a drummer but, you know, we got drums and the women were able to express what they were feeling by beating these drums, you know, and um, we use that to get people to start to let 
those feelings out in a safe way mm, and connect yeah so i mean like you know music music is really great mm. all kinds of music using music for therapy using art for therapy there's so many things that we can use there's not there's not much that can't be used mm. it's just you know if you use your imagination and make it become part of it um Hermes now works with um at the multicultural association in Fredericton and he works with youth mm. and he does his therapeutic work playing soccer oh neat and that's when the kids come and talk to him they'll be in the middle of a soccer game and sometimes they'll even run over in the middle of the game and say i need to tell you something and he'll Amazing. stop and he'll stop everything and let them talk to him for you know so i mean it's just it's we need to do things we need to meet the need where the need is. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll be transforming my therapeutic practice in September to groups. I've been gearing up for that all year doing research. Group, really, oh, groups are wonderful. It's how I want to do it. And I know that there's two that I want to have. One is a men's group because my primarily my work is with men. But another one is uh, for teens and early adults with social anxiety. And I learned it from I forget his name now, but he's in New Brunswick. Uh, Fredericks in New Brunswick, he works at UMB. He's a mental health strategist named Matt, but his last name's lost to me. But he does he does D and D and board games, mental health D and D and board games. So he'll he'll do an intake to get familiar with the, the client, and then he'll organize his D and D campaign where they can work on social anxiety and anxiety skills and social interactions through a game. So they can both Great. talk to him outside, but then engage with it on the inside. And I, it's something that I would love, like that's in the cards later on, um, coming up. Because I think it's so beautiful because humans were storytellers and endlessly creative. It's part of the fabric of who we are. And so the more you can engage with that as you're building the skills of where you want to go, and the more you can connect, the more the healing happens. And groups is a massive part of that. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very um, enthusiastic about groups. I've run, I have run groups in the past. I don't have the time to do that now, but it's something I, I think that when people get to a certain point, the group part work is where they need to go, mm -hmm. you know, because that is how you learn how to be part of a community too. Mm -hmm. That's right. I mean, I, I, I worked in every first nation community in some capacity here in, in New Brunswick and everything is done in, in, in uh, talking circles. Mm. So anytime I've ever had any kind of group, I always use that format because it's so respectful. You know, no one talks except the person who's holding whatever the object is, you know, whether it's a rock or that kind of thing. Mm. And um, I, you know, and there's no restriction on how long people talk, that kind of thing. There's no mm. cross talk, there's nothing. And so that I find that format is is really encouraging and and uh, empowering mm. for the people who take part. And you can just pass it too. You know, you don't have to talk until you're ready. That's right. Yeah. I love the process. It's something I'm looking forward to engaging. Well, great. I mean, we've gone from resilience to groups all over the place. <laughs> um, so before before we we go before I end it. I want you to, can you tell the audience, uh, the listeners, where to find you, where to find your work, 
uh, whether it's the books, the websites, all of it. Okay, well, I'm not very good at remembering my website. I do have a website. <laughs> <laughs> well, go ahead and pull it up. I, I realized that I forgot to mention I was going to do this. So Yeah, I am. Um, but if you just Google, if you just Google Eve Mills Allen, you anybody who wants to Google me, my books, my my website will probably come up. You may see some other things. I do sing a little bit. So if you don't like old country music, you don't want to listen to that one. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, but In the Arms of a Noop is available through the publisher, Harp Publishing. Mm -hmm. um, and my website is, um, I think it's, that's terrible, Eve. Um, Eve Mills Allen Consulting, I believe, but it's under Garns Guides. Garns Guides, Eve Mills Allen Consulting. That's right. Yeah. So I think if you just Google me, you're going to find me there. And so my old books are under Eve Mills Nash. Okay. So Google Eve Mills Allen and Eve Mills Nash to find everything you're doing. Yeah. Awesome. Well, today was great. Thanks very much for walking us through it. I look forward to having you back on the show at some point because yeah. I'm sure. Thank there's... you so much. This is a this is a wonderful idea. Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm very proud of it, and it's a lot of fun. All right, thank you everybody for listening. Uh, this is, as I said in the beginning, this is episode ten. If you can believe it or not, I'm very excited about that. Thank you very much for the continuing support for the show. If you do like it and you know someone who would love to hear it, please share it with them. You can share it from the social media feeds or go right on to. You know, Spotify, Audible. Oh my goodness, I can't speak anymore. You know what I mean. Anywhere you get your podcast, you're listening to this from, share it, send it to your friends. You can also reach out to me through the social media platforms and let me know what you think if you have any questions. And also, if there's any therapists in your area or type of therapies you're looking to learn more about, uh, just let me know and I'll reach out and I'll be able to set it up. All right, thanks again. Mm -hmm.